Good afternoon, and welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. Today we're bringing you a celebration of women and continue to celebrate the Afro-American heritage of this country because, well, one month is just too short, especially February. You'll be hearing Lorraine Hansberry, a historical voice that continues to be relevant today, as well as listen to an interview by Idris Hassan, a spoken word artist, Aya de Leon, who raises issues of self-love that resonate with women today. Stay with us. Playwright and painter Lorraine Hansberry wrote of black consciousness before it was fashionable, and she passed on to us a legacy of astounding richness and relevancy. Few writers, black or white, are more relevant to present-day United States than Lorraine Hansberry. She was born in Chicago as the daughter of a prominent real estate broker. In 1959, her play, A Raisin in the Sun, was the first drama by a black woman to be produced on Broadway. It also won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award as the best play of the year. She once commented on the role of art as, quote, All art is ultimately social, that which agitates and that which prepares the mind for slumber, end quote. Her premature death at the age of 34 cut short her promising career. Lorraine Hansberry died of cancer on January 12, 1965. The following is an excerpt of Lorraine Hansberry addressing young students in a speech titled, My Government is Wrong, recorded in 1962. Young people speak today with a candor that's quite new in the world. If after all the ambition in life is merely to be rich, then all that might threaten that possibility is much to be avoided. This means, therefore, not incurring the disfavor of employers. It means, how can one protest against the possibility of war if one expects to draw one's livelihood, as an engineer says, from the aircraft industry? How can one write plays which have either implicit or explicit in them a quality of detestation of such commerciality if, in fact, one is beholden to the commerciality of the professional sphere? How can one even protest the criminal persecution of political dissenters if one has already discovered at 19 that it is safer not to do so? How indeed can one have the deepest, most profound moral outrage about the fact of the condition of the Negro people in the United States when one has it dinned into one's ears day after day that the only reason why perhaps that troublesome and provocative group of people must someday be permitted to buy a cup of coffee or rent an apartment or get a job is not because of the recognition of the universal humanity of the human race but because of all the disgraceful things in the world. It happens to be of extremely expedient international politics to grant these things. As I stand here, I know perfectly well that such institutions as the House Committee and all the other little committees has dragged on its particular obscene theatrics for all these years not to expose communists or do anything really in connection with the security of the United States. They have done it merely to create an atmosphere where, in the first place, I would not come here tonight at all, and second of all, that I would not say what I am going to say, which is, I think that my government is wrong. I would like to see them turn back our ships in the Caribbean 
stupid people, to my mind, and I speak only for myself, have chosen their destiny. And I don't happen to think that someone brought up in the traditions of our country, that it is the place of the descendants of the American Revolution who never asked anybody for permission to become a republic, to now interfere in that fact of life any place in the world. Still speaking only for myself and exercising this right, I would go so far, speaking as a Negro in America, to impose a little of what Negroes say all the time to each other, to you. But not only might they turn back the ships, but turn to the affairs of our country that need a writing. And for one thing, empty the legislative and judicial chambers of victims of political persecution so that we know why that lamp is burning out there in Brooklyn. And while they're at it, go on and help fulfill the American dream and empty the southern jails where the genuine heroes practically the only last vestige of dignity that we have to boast about at this moment in our history. That we let those students out of the jails, which is part of our national disgrace at this moment, that this is where young people have to go to ensure what is already on the books. And I would go so far, perhaps with an oversense of drama, but not, not so maybe. And suggest that maybe, without waiting for another two men to die in place in the South, that we send some of those troops on the way to the Caribbean now to finish the reconstruction in Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, and every place else where the fact of our national flag flying creates the false notion that what happened at the end of the Civil War was the defeat of the Slavocracy. And I say not merely in behalf of the black and oppressed, but for a change, and more and more thoughtful Negroes have to begin to make this point. But for the white and disinherited of the South, for the poor whites of the South who by the millions have been made the tragic and befuddled instruments of their own oppression at the hands of the most sinister political apparatus in our country. I think perhaps if our government would do that, it would not have to compete in any wishful way for the respect of the new black and brown nations of the world. Finally, I think that all of us who are thinking such things exercise this right that we're talking about tonight and say them to my fellow artists, paint them, sing them, all of the things that are not currently fashionable to do. Otherwise, all else happens, in my opinion, to be idle and luxurious complicity and no other thing. I personally agree with those who say that from here on in, we are to survive, we the people, still an excellent phrase, we the people, have to oblige all the heads of all governments responsible to us, the world's people. I think that it is imperative to say no to all of it, no to war of any kind, anywhere. And I think, therefore, it is imperative to remove from the American fabric any and all such institutions or agencies such as the House Committee on Un-American Activities which are designed expressly to keep us from saying no. Thank you. Rarely do we stop to think about the importance of self-love and the importance of our relationships with ourselves. 
Performance artist and poet Aya de Leon has been hosting an annual Valentine's Day Love Fest for 11 years where participants have had the chance to marry themselves, to express commitment and dedication to love of self. Idris Hassan talked to her recently about the event and the importance of women and self-love. Aya de Leon. Her one-woman shows include Aya de Leon is Running for President and Thieves in the Temple, The Reclaiming of Hip Hop. Aya performs nationally and throughout the Bay Area and has been featured at events such as the Hip Hop Theater Festival in New York and Youth Speaks Annual Living Word Festival in San Francisco. I started by asking her, what inspired this alternative Valentine's Day event 11 years ago? Well, back in 1995, when I started the Love Fest, I was single and, you know, was going through a kind of a multi-year period of being a single woman and was in my late 20s. And um, there was a lot of pressure on me that I should be in a relationship or I should be in love or I should be getting married. And uh, the pressure was stressing me out. So when Valentine's Day would come around, which is supposed to be this celebration of love, I hated the holiday and I was miserable. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way to celebrate this holiday because there's so many different kinds of love, even though we live in a capitalist society that tries to use our anxiety and isolation and feelings of lovelessness to manipulate us to buy stuff. There must be a way to celebrate the kinds of love that we do have, the kinds of love that is not for sale, the kinds of love that we can't be manipulated into buying things about love of spirit, love of self, love of community. So that was how it began. I just was on a mission to figure out how to celebrate the love that I had on a holiday that was pressuring me to go out and buy something to get the love that I didn't think I had. What were some of the highlights of last year's Love Fest? It's hard to say because there's so many highlights, but if I had to pick one from last year, it would be the young people. I have traditionally always had young poets, but now I've been having some young musicians. And last year I had Elena and Samora Pinderhues, who are, I think at this point, 10 or 11 and 14 or 15 respectively. So they were younger than usual and they were just so incredibly talented. They perform jazz and Latin jazz and uh, they just tore it up. I think everybody just really got to see the power of young people shining and young people in the arts. Uh, one of the things that I love in featuring young poets is just the fresh way that young people think about themselves and that young people think about gender and in particular I feel like there's a way that previous generations have been doing a lot of work to integrate concepts of self-love and self-esteem into kind of our the vocabulary of our community and it's really beautiful to see young people run with that so this young poet Corina Pela who is uh, a youth speaks poet and just a fabulous writer performed this piece talking about her body and self-love I love my belly come to terms with the fact that it's not flat it will never be flat and that is just how I like it think it's sexy don't mind if you think it's sexy just don't want you to disrespect me just don't want you to expect me to owe you something because you like my belly to me it's crazy thought that 400 crunches and 200 leg lifts on each side would get rid of these rolls these beautiful rolls this amazing shape of a woman i take but took too early so it didn't fit me 
Oh, it's so slow coming back on this long road after all the pictures telling you you don't know, don't like yourself. Sometimes I want to show I am so proud. Plus, I like it. Yeah, plus, I like it. Leave the house with it hanging out, belly ringing all, and I am excited. I'm excited, but... Then here it goes, the looks, oh, why is it so bad to show my tummy when most of the clothes are made to show me off as an object anyway? Plus, half the clothes are so tight, it's like I'm not even wearing clothes, so I might as well just show my body anyway. <laughs> That's the message, isn't it? Anyway, I've come to this conclusion. Figured out that it's not bad to show my body and it's not necessarily good to keep it hidden, dislike it, I like it. If it's with my hips, it's quite nice and suffice to say it's mine. So I'm finding I'm able to go on forever about it, so... Just to save y'all some time, I love my belly. Thank you. So a few years ago at um, one of your love fests, you had a beloved self workshop. Can you describe that and tell me a little bit more about what that's like? Absolutely. In both 2004 and 2005, uh, prior to the performance in the evening, uh, I had a workshop called The Beloved Self, and it was a mass self-marriage workshop and ceremony where people basically got together, wrote some vows to themselves, and married themselves. And uh, it was really, really fun. Some people dressed up, some people came casual, but it was really all about self-love and the vows that we want to make to ourselves in these challenging times of how we want to take care of ourselves and how we want to honor ourselves. And I'm not worried that, you know, if people don't take it seriously that they'll divorce themselves, but I am concerned that if people don't take the commitment seriously that we won't keep our vows to ourselves. Now, this is a very powerful concept that you're talking about. Now, I know the average person might like, oh, my God, that's so crazy, getting married to yourself. What have been some people's reactions to this ceremony? Well, it definitely has been a mix. But one of the things that was so interesting, I married myself in uh, 1996, and then I wrote about it in Essence Magazine in 1997, and I got letters from all over the country, people saying, I did that, or I've always wanted to do that, or I love that idea. And it was just very powerful. And some people think, okay, that's crazy. But the truth, when you really come down to it, of our lives, is that we are the only ones who we can count on having from birth to death we are the ones who we're going to walk this path of life with and finding partnership and love is wonderful but i also find now as a woman who has gotten married that the vows that i've made to myself actually are the foundation of all of my relationships in particular any type of marriage that i would have with someone else Last year at the self-marriage ceremony, my partner married himself so that he would also bring those vows and that commitment to himself and his liberation to the marriage so that we would both kind of have those commitments in place. You know, the thing that I get most commonly when people are like, they'll say, well, you know, did you have to divorce yourself when you married someone else? And the answer is no, that self-marriage is a foundation. So I think on the one hand, people might think that it's quirky or strange, but our culture is shifting and people are starting to understand this notion of self-love and self-care as being part of our experience. I think that the whole notion of romance, like romantic love is wonderful, but it's like dessert. You know, basically... Romantic love is dessert, and uh, you need to eat your greens, you need to eat your proteins, you need to eat the kinds of stuff that sustains us. The romance isn't what sustains the relationship, it's the ability to really have 
close connections and relationships need support and relationships need to be supported by a whole other set of close relationships with trusted people. Thank you, Aya. We're talking with performance artist and writer Aya De Leon. Now, Aya, you're a well-known spoken word artist and have created many outstanding works, uh, such as The Thieves in the Temple, The Reclaiming of Hip Hop, where your characters explore deep issues such as misogyny, violence, and self-esteem. Can you talk about the importance of using art to address such critical subjects? Well, I think that one of the things that's really important for us, particularly those of us who are part of the community of activists and progressive folks, that, um, you know, there are many, many powerful ideas um, that we have around how we want to transform the society. But unfortunately, a lot of times we get stuck in trying to communicate those ideas to our communities in some same old, same old ways, like preaching to people or yelling at people or kind of presenting the material in a way that's not super engaging. And that is one of the things that I feel like, you know, my generation, the hip hop generation that, you know, we understand that in these times in speaking to our community, it's not enough to just offer ideas like, you know, you got to have the beat, you got to have the flavor, you got to have the creativity, you got to have the way of engaging community. And that's one of the reasons that I love mixing the messages of self-love and the politics and the art, because that's how I as an artist get to engage audiences of various ages, hip hop generation and, you know, older, um, that's how I can really engage with people in what is more of a dialogue or at least an exchange of energy where, you know, people, I'm putting out some thoughts, some ideas, some creative expression and folks are feeling me and, you know, hollering back basically in terms of that exchange and letting me know, you know, if it's landing. And it's not just that people are agreeing with the thoughts or the ideas, but people are feeling the work or feeling transformed by the work. For example, you know, one of the poems that I continue to perform because people want to hear it is... um a poem about the female body called Cellulite and it's a very Hollaback poem you know it's got a lot of call and response in it and what's powerful about that poem is that during the space of the poem because I'm affirming all of women's bodies and folks are affirming them back to me that it just shifts the energy in the room so I feel like art and creativity have this opportunity not just to share ideas um, not just facts and information, but to actually transform energy and to wake people up emotionally and spiritually so that they can take information into their being in a deeper way. Do you think you can recite a few lines from that poem? Oh, okay, from Cellulite? Sure, I'd love to. So this is the beginning of the poem. Cellulite, that's right. They try to sell you light, beer light, cake light, cookies, Pepsi light, 99% fat free. But who's trying to be fat free? Certainly not me. Let me see your thighs jiggle. They're jiggling, baby. Go ahead, baby. What do you think people can do to bring more love into the world? 
You know, one of the things that's interesting about having done this festival now, this is our 11th year, is just watching it shift and evolve. And one of the things that has definitely shifted and evolved has been just thinking about gender in terms of the love fest. Because I know initially I was very much um, present in my own personal experience of being a woman in my 20s and uh, not being in a relationship and seeing the kinds of pressure that was put on women and just really encouraging us as women to reclaim our sense of wholeness and our power. But after doing the event for so many years and, you know, my own learning and growth, I also just see the ways that men are really, really hit hard, too, by these messages. It hits men in a slightly different way, but men are also being really hit hard. So that's been another thing for me as well, really thinking about how can I hold out a message, not just to women, that, you know, we are full and complete and powerful with or without a partner, but how can I also hold out messages to men, you know, that men don't need to look to love and sexual relationships to complete them either, that men can have their own sense of wholeness and their own sense of integrity. And I really try every year to have a crew of guests that really balances, just balances in terms of gender, balances in terms of, you know, different racial and cultural groups, definitely wanting to have both folks in heterosexual relationships and queer folks representing because I think all of us, regardless of our gender, our sexual orientation, our racial or cultural background, get hurt in this society, in this world, in the area of love. You know, there's, of course, spiritually, there is enough love, but the way our society is organized, we don't always get enough love. So, I really want this to be an event that everybody can come to and feel at home and also see themselves represented on stage. So this is a, sometimes I think of this particular Valentine's Day event as sort of like a bomb shelter where folks can come and be together and, you know, shelter together and enjoy themselves as, you know, kind of the advertising bombs are dropping everywhere outside. So, yeah, I think of this as an annual sheltering where folks can come together and know that uh, the true meaning of love will be held up and these uh these capitalist notions of love will be um, completely contradicted. We will now hear Aya de Leon performing at the 11th Annual Love Fest held at La Peña Cultural Center on February 14, 2006. I also have lots of love for my brothers, so I feel like doing this piece um, for uh, all my brothers. So this piece is for all the sensitive guys. <laughs> Guys on stage and I also want to dedicate this to my sensitive guy, um, my partner, who, and I just want to say, you know, they had mentioned hot dates. You know, I don't have a hot date tonight because my sweetie is out of town on business, but, you know, it's all good because he married himself here last year, and he's following his destiny this week, and he'll be back. So, I'm one of the people who doesn't have a hot date tonight, but wait. I do have a hot day because I'm married to myself. So actually, wait, before we go on, while people are all hyped up, I know some people purchased rings during the intermission so you could get engaged to yourself. So this is, we've, we've reached the engagement portion of the show. And you don't have to stand up or declare anything publicly yet. That's what the marriage is for. But right now, those of you who bought rings, just look at your shiny ring and put your hand on your heart. And those of you who also want to just join in and can repeat after me and say, I love myself. <laughs> and I'm so 
rest of my life with my <laughs> And this is the optional part. Will you marry me? get depressed about the state of the world and didn't get laid much in high school. And not just because they're grateful when you go out with them, get a clue, people. Sensitive guys are sexy. Of course, of course, ten years ago, I used to like emotionally monochromatic, sexually aggressive bad boy types, but that's just because I hadn't had any therapy yet. Now, now I am clear that men can commit no act of rebellion as daring as crying. You gotta be one tough to hold on to your sensitivity through this hazing from hell called growing up male in America with very few role models, I might add, which is why I'm gonna save up my money and start a cable TV network. The Sensitive Guy Channel. All sensitive guys all the time. Yes, there will be cop shows, but they will only last a season because the star will realize he hates being a cop. And he'll go off to follow his true calling to become an artist, veterinarian, or preschool teacher. There will also be daytime soap operas, which will include both gay and straight couples. My network will fight stereotypes. Not all sensitive guys are gay. And not all gay guys are sensitive. <laughs> there will also be a high school show called Sensitive Guys from South Central. And they'll have sensitive guy gangs talking about where my sensitive is in bed. And, and they'll have sensitive guy gang signs like... Yeah, there will also be a music show and the most requested video will be the one with the hip-hop MC sensitive black guy wearing sweats and sneakers from a garage sale and no gold whatsoever. He'll be driving down the street in his mother's jacked up 1982 Nissan Sentra. And he'll be rapping to the beat of the AM only radio and following him down the street will be this big pack of supermodels all hot to get him in bed. Toward the end of the video, Tyra Banks will corner him and he'll tell her, very sensitively of course, that uh, uh, yo Tyra, uh, you seem like a very nice person, but uh, sex makes me feel hella vulnerable and I don't know you and I would need time to like, you know what I'm saying, build up the intimacy between us, but yo I'm not available for none of that ma, cause uh, I have a girlfriend. <laughs> no, she's like a brainy girl. <laughs> With glasses. See how weighs y'all supermodels by at least 50 pounds. No, Tyra, I'm madly in love with this girl. I'm straight committed to this relationship. Of course, on the TV show, I would play the girlfriend. And finally, on the Sensitive Guy channel, there will be news shows, and no one will be choking on a suit and tie and they will report how many boys get sexually abused and how many boys get beaten and how many boys get bullied and how many boys get told they're bad, stupid, lazy, pitiful, worthless, failures who never amount to anything are going straight to hell and are just like their fathers. Whoa. 
And suddenly, men's behavior in the news on all the other networks will start to make some sense. But until I can raise the money for my network, I'm just going to go around reading this poem, <laughs> telling the world that I love sensitive guys, which is really to say that I love all guys, because even those emotionally monochromatic, sexually aggressive bad boy types are really just sensitive guys waiting to happen as soon as we make the society kind enough that men can truly be themselves. All the You've been listening to Idris Hassan interviewing Aya Vignon about her one-woman show, Love Fest, and the importance of women and self-love. Prior to that, you heard an excerpt of Lorraine Hansberry addressing young students in a speech titled, My Government is Wrong. That was recorded in 1962 and distributed now by Harper Audio. Many thanks for listening to Cover to Cover Open Book. If you have any questions or comments about this program or any of the Cover to Cover Open Book shows, you can call me, Amelia, at 510-848-6767, extension 212, or you can reach me by email at amelia at kpfa.org. With Erica Bridgman at the controls, I thank you for listening. On Sunday, March 19th at 7 p.m., KPFA will present Culture Clash's new play, Zorro in Hell. California was born from a clash of cultures, and now the trio Culture Clash explodes the myths surrounding its creation. Zorro in Hell explores homeland security in the Wild West during a time when Anglo-Americans struggle with Mexican immigration. Indian gambling and a governor born on foreign soil. Experience the explosion and join the cast at a wine and dessert reception following the performance. Sunday, March 19th, 7 p.m. at the Berkeley Repertoire Theater, located at 2025 Addison Street in Berkeley. Theater is wheelchair accessible. Tickets are $75 for the play and the reception. You can purchase tickets securely online at www.kpfa.org. For more information, call 510-848-6767, extension 255. It's 94.1 FM KPFA and 89.3 FM KPFB, both in Berkeley and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online www.kpfa.org. It's 3.30 and time for Free Speech Radio News. This is Free Speech Radio News. It's Friday, the 3rd of March, 2006. From KPFK in Los Angeles, I'm Aura Bogado. On today's newscast, we'll hear from Oaxaca, where a tense standoff is underway between police and a self-declared autonomous municipality. 
A new Guantanamo Bay Detention Center government document indicates torture and inhumane treatment. And we'll hear the latest from Jakarta about massive protests against the Freeport Gold Mining Company. These stories and more after the headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the Free Speech Radio News Headlines. Philippine President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo today lifted a week-long state of emergency after security officials assured her that the threat against her government has subsided. Gurley Linau reports from Manila. Less than two hours before President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo announced the end of the state of emergency, two explosions rocked a commercial district in Manila. No one was hurt and the police said the blasts were too minor to have delayed the lifting of the emergency rule. President Arroyo said she was confident that order has been restored one week after communist rebels, rightist soldiers and political opponents allegedly conspired to oust her. While she said the cabal has been broken, she warned she will not hesitate to again take tough actions if her opponents don't stand down. Critics expressed doubts that the lifting of the state of emergency would end the crackdown on the political opposition, leftist groups and media critical to the government. Street protests without permits are still banned and authorities are continuing to monitor the media for negative reports. Legal experts, the opposition and civil liberties groups have challenged the emergency rules legality before the Supreme Court and they have vowed to press on with the fight. The High Tribunal will hear their arguments next Tuesday. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Gorlilino in Manila. This week saw a jump in Maoist attacks in Nepal. Yesterday, rebels bombed an office of the World Food Program, the first time that a UN installation has been targeted. FSRN's Kerry Byron is in Kathmandu. After a moderate lull since highly contentious municipal elections took place here on February 8th, violence has again escalated in Nepal this week. On Saturday and again on Monday, bombs exploded in busy urban centers in the western tourist town of Pokhara, injuring at least 18, many critically. The explosions, which coincided with a visit to Pokhara by the king and queen on Monday, were unusual in their lack of forewarning and their specific disregard for civilian victims. On Tuesday, a day-long clash in a remote western location between insurgents and security forces saw upwards of 40 casualties, although accounts from both sides differ widely. Yesterday, four explosives went off in the southeastern town of Damak, including at the offices of the UN's World Food Program, which oversees food distribution to the country's 105 Bhutanese refugees. The unusually cavalier blasts in Pokhara and Damak follow concerted efforts by rebels to ingratiate themselves to the international community. During February, Maoist leadership suddenly gave a spate of high-profile interviews to international media in what has been seen as an attempt to re-emerge as an above-ground political force. Kerry Byron, Kathmandu. Hamas leaders are in Moscow today to hold the first high-level talks since their surprise election victory in January. Menard Jabrin reports. The six-member delegation is meeting with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Levinov, but not with President Vladimir Putin. Russia has called on Hamas to soften its stance towards Israel and to abide by agreements signed by the former Fatah-led government. Back in the West Bank, a 15-year-old Palestinian boy was killed this morning as Israeli troops in approximately 30 jeeps invaded the Al Ain camp on the western side of Nablus. The city and its surroundings have been subjected to daily invasions for the past week. Nine civilians have been killed and 89 injured since the attacks began Saturday. For FSRN from IMMC.org in Palestine, this is Manar Jibreen. The Department of Defense has announced that it will release the names of Guantanamo Bay detainees today. The names will be contained within some 6,000 pages of transcripts from the combatant status review tribunals carried out at the detention facility. The names are being made public for the first time in response to a legal challenge brought by the Associated Press under the terms of the Freedom of Information Act.
Scientists have concluded that the Antarctic ice cap is melting at a much faster rate than previously thought. According to findings published today in the journal Science, the Antarctic ice mass is losing roughly 36 cubic miles each year. Connecticut's top attorney has issued a ruling that all pharmacies in the state that serve people covered by state insurance plans must carry the emergency contraceptive, known as the morning-after pill, or Plan B. That includes Walmart, which up till now has not done so. Melinda Tuhus reports from New Haven. The state insurance plans cover 188,000 state employees, retirees, and dependents. About 20 Walmart pharmacies will be dropped from the state insurance network in two weeks unless the company fills prescriptions for the Plan B contraceptive, which can prevent pregnancies if taken within 72 hours after sexual intercourse. Attorney General Richard Blumenthal issued his legal opinion yesterday. Walmart does not carry the drug at most of its pharmacies nationally, citing lack of demand. But critics say its failure to carry Plan B is a response to pressure from religious conservatives who claim it would increase promiscuity. A spokesman for Walmart says the company will comply with the Connecticut law. For FSRN, I'm Melinda Tuhus in New Haven. And I'm Shannon Young for Free Speech Radio News. Former FEMA head Michael Brown is calling for Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff to resign. Brown isn't placing all the blame for the catastrophe that followed Hurricane Katrina on Chertoff and admitted to some of his own failures. But black and Latino residents trying to rebuild the affected region are charging the government with human rights violations. Leanne Caldwell reports. Tapes revealed earlier this week that former Federal Emergency Management Agency Director Michael Brown led multiple briefings on Hurricane Katrina. This tape is dated August 29th, the day the storm hit. What they don't realize is there's still a lot of rain, there's still a lot of storm surge, there's still a lot of potential victims out there. Michael Brown took the blame for the slow government response of Katrina rescue and relief efforts and resigned September 12th. At a Senate hearing a couple of weeks ago, Brown blamed himself and also Department of Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff. But with the release of these tapes, he called directly for the resignation of Chertoff. In Congress, Senate Democrats say these tapes emphasize the need for an independent commission to investigate government response. But residents of the Gulf Coast are taking their critique further. Some living through the aftermath say that the U.S. government has committed human rights abuses. They took their case to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights at the Organization of American States. They have continued to fail in responding to the basic needs of people, some 750,000 Gulf Coast households that have been displaced and in fact have been moving in a direction and taking actions that actually harm us. Monique Hardin is co-director and attorney for Advocates for Environmental Human Rights. She has lived in New Orleans her entire life. In whatever city they live in or community they live in, if they were forced to evacuate with 24 hours notice, they would be in the same situation that we are in in the South. Many people would be left behind. And our government has already demonstrated that it's not going to protect us, it's not going to protect our lives, it's not going to ensure justice for people who want to rebuild their communities. Hardin says the black community in New Orleans has been shut out of the rebuilding process. The school systems are turning to a chartered system which can deny students, and the displaced are not being allowed to vote in their home districts, she says. 
The Latino community also brought their case to the Human Rights Commission. They say workers are being exploited. They work in dangerous conditions with no protective gear and are paid substandard wages, they say. Thomas Aguilar is with the Equal Justice Center. He works with the day labor program in New Orleans. He spoke about many stories the workers tell. So for me to sit there and bargain, I have no power. There's like 20, 30 other people that will take the job without that. And when you're sleeping on the streets, you have nowhere to go, you need money, you're hungry, the last thing on earth you're going to do is try to jeopardize your chances. So no. According to the testimonies, the Department of Labor is not overseeing labor practices and not investigating workers' complaints. The Labor Department has not returned repeated phone calls confirming or denying this claim. The residents hope the Human Rights Commission will visit the Gulf Coast and determine that human rights violations are occurring. Furthermore, they are asking Congress to create legislation that would monitor labor practices and the disbursement of money allocated to rebuild the region. Three congressional caucuses have come together to draft legislation that would aid Katrina survivors, but it lacks any sort of oversight mechanism. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Leanne Caldwell. A Guantanamo Bay Detention Center government interrogation log posted on the Internet confirms that U.S. personnel inflicted torture and inhumane treatment on Guantanamo Bay detainee Mohammed Al-Khatani. The 84-page record details interrogations during a six-month period from December 2002 to January 2003 and describes the way in which Al-Khatani was pushed to his physical and psychological limit. We're joined on the line by Bill Goodman, legal director for the Center for Constitutional Rights, which represents Mohammed Al-Khatani in a federal court challenging his detention. Bill Goodman, can you talk about how serious these accusations of torture are? Well, these are extremely serious accusations. What what happened to our client, Mr. Al-Khatani, clearly goes way beyond any standard that, that can be condoned by American law, international law, Senator McCain, or plain, ordinary morality. This is a man who, even before the interrogation logs, the, which have now been posted, was treated like an animal, was kept uh, in a brightly lighted small cell for months for uh, lights on 24 hours a day he was seen to be to have lost it psychologically and emotionally he was talking to imaginary people and hearing imaginary voices he was huddled in a cell with a sheet over him uh for hours at a time and then he's he's interrogated for a full month without any sleep whatsoever he gets at the at the most four hours of sleep a night and then he's continually interrogated under very rough circumstances when he refuses to eat or drink they force him to eat or drink uh... at times he's refused the opportunity to go to the bathroom and he he soils himself it's a very very disturbing document the department of defense has apparently said that gitmo doesn't have to abide by banned torture techniques what does this say about international law? What it says is that uh, the United States wants to make its own law. It doesn't want to abide by international law. It wants, uh, for any of us who've ever played tag or hide and seek, we know there's a home where, you, where you're free, where you don't get caught, where nothing happens to you. That's what the United States wants. It wants a place where there is no law. And where there is no law, there's going to be incredible acts of inhumanity, and that's what we've been seeing. Bill Goodman is the legal director for the Center for Constitutional Rights.
President Bush began his visit to Pakistan today, greeted by an explosion near the U.S. consulate that killed four, including a U.S. diplomat in the southern Pakistani city of Karachi. A countrywide strike was observed today to express anger against the cartoon published in several European cities, which is considered blasphemous by many Muslims. Masrur Hausen reports. President Bush was scheduled to stay in Pakistan for three days, but his aides announced he would not stay for more than a day. The reason given for the sudden change of plans is an unscheduled visit to Afghanistan, but it is widely believed in Pakistan the Karachi explosion may have forced him to cut short his visit. Bush is not a popular figure in Pakistan because of the American attack on Iraq and its war on terrorism. It is an opinion in Pakistan that Al-Qaeda is a fictitious organization created by the Americans and that it is a ruse to club down Muslims who are portrayed as the bad guys, as for the communists. Abdul Jabbar is a foreign relations analyst with Hamdard University. People in Pakistan are extremely angry with Musharraf for handing over the country to America, who is clearly the most unpopular leader in the world today. And what do we get in return? U.S. troops in Afghanistan attacking our borders? Most of the policies in Pakistan are made with the consent of the American government. Now you see, this is what we call interference. President Musharraf is expected to raise the issue of Kashmir during his meeting Saturday with President Bush. He is likely to ask for American intervention. Masroor Hussain, Free Speech Radio News, Islamabad. Massive protests broke out in cities throughout Indonesia after a security guard employed by the U.S. gold mining company Freeport shot three local people, killing one of them. Since last week, Papuan people have been blocking Freeport's gold mining, while students in many Indonesian cities have organized protests calling for an end to the mining operation. From Jakarta, FSRN's Maggie Margiona reports on people's frustrations with Freeport mining. Dozens of Papuan students in Jakarta attacked Freeport Mining's Indonesian field office last week. They're angry after hearing news that the U.S. gold mining company killed a local man who was searching for leftover gold at Freeport's garbage site. Arkelas Baho is the coordinator of the Front for Papuan Liberation. He says that the protests against Freeport will continue until the government and parliament end Freeport's operations in Indonesia. We will continue to occupy Freeport until Freeport is completely finished. People will continue to block Freeport. The government and parliament must make an exacting action against this company that is evidently committed to environmental destruction and human rights violations. According to a report made by Amnesty International in September of 1995, Freeport has committed killings, tortures, discrimination, and kidnapping. Cisco Dimi is coordinator of Papuan Students Association. He says that the demand to end Freeport's operations are based on the following reasons. First, Freeport's operation in Papua was based on a political process. Freeport made an operating contract with the Indonesian government in the U.S. in 1967. At that time, Papua was not yet formally united with Indonesia. 
That was an illegal contract. Secondly, since Freeport started operations in Papua, there were many human rights violations like mass killings, murdering, and kidnappings. Thirdly, both Freeport and the Indonesian government have never made contributions to the local people's economy. Freeport employs Indonesia special forces as security guards. This special force has killed and kidnapped many people. One woman who was kidnapped was Mama Yusefa, a tribal leader. She was detained in Freeport's containers as she organized women to attack Freeport's airport. She later went on to testify against Freeport in a lawsuit filed by Amangme tribal leaders. In 1997, the tribal leader filed a lawsuit against Freeport McMorin in Louisiana State Court. The court found that Freeport was responsible for dumping over 120,000 tons of toxic mine waste into the rivers of Papua every single day from 1967 to 1996. The judge slapped Freeport with a fine of six billion U.S. dollars, but the money was never distributed to the people. The Indonesian government is now starting to investigate environmental destruction in the region. If Freeport is found to have systems that contribute to the gross destruction of the environment, the government will take legal action. Muhammad Jempur Adnan is deputy minister of environment. We will study the water, the toxic waste, and the other dangerous chemicals made by Freeport. When we finish the evaluation, we will know the result. We must act fairly. In addition to committing human rights violations and contributing to environmental destruction, Freeport has reportedly offered bribes to the Indonesian army and government bureaucrats. Drajat Wimbowo, an economist and member of parliament, is calling for an audit of Freeport's financial records. There is already an audit report by the government. In my opinion, the audit report made by the government is unfair. Members of Parliament and an independent team should conduct another audit. The Indonesian government has not yet made any comment on the demands to close Freeport. Indonesia's Vice President Yusuf Kala says the government will not review Freeport's operation contract. Reading for Megi Margiono in Jakarta, I'm Eric Klein reporting for Free Speech Radio News. A tense standoff is underway between government forces and the townspeople of a self-declared autonomous municipality in the state of Oaxaca, in southern Mexico. Approximately 800 heavily armed police have arrived in the Zapotec town of San Blas Atempa and continue to guard the town hall building, which has been at the center of a 14-month-long struggle for political autonomy. FSRN's Vladimir Flores reports from Oaxaca. Hundreds of heavily armed state police arrived in San Blas Atempa on Wednesday to expel the popular government from the town hall of the autonomous municipality. The town hall building had been occupied by a governing council that was brought to power by a popular uprising on January 1st of 2005. The uprising was sparked by what the townspeople say was a massive electoral fraud that handed a municipal election victory to the lackey of a despised regional political boss or cacique. During the swearing-in ceremonies, angry townspeople took the town hall by force, ran out the imposed mayor. Instituted their own popular government and declared the town an autonomous municipality. Ever since then, the townspeople have resisted state government attempts to reassert political influence in San Blas, saying the state government is marred by corruption and comprised of political bosses. Mexico will hold presidential elections in July, and Oaxaca's governor is an outspoken ally of the pre-presidential candidate. 
Some residents of San Blas Atempa have speculated that the state government will resort to electoral fraud to guarantee a victory for the PRI in Oaxaca. Dr. Francisco Salud is the popularly chosen mayor of the autonomous municipal government. The population has determined not to permit the installation of government voting stations. I think this worries the government because it knows that in this area, especially here in San Blas, it already carried out the most significant electoral fraud in the region. So in this situation, they want to resolve the problem in order to set up voting centers and to carry out this fraud. Like the indigenous Zapatista uprising of 1994, the 2005 uprising in San Blas Atempa took place on New Year's Day. During his recent visit to the political prisoners of San Blas Atempa in the Tehuantepec State Penitentiary, Zapatista Subcomandante Marcos commended the level of organization that broke the town's popular government to power without firing a single shot. Without weapons, with the sheer force of organization, you were able to install your own government. It cost us more. We had to rise up in arms. We had to cover our faces. Autonomous Mayor Dr. Salud told FSRN that talks are currently underway with state government officials. Approximately 800 state police continue to occupy the town. The townspeople are calling for the release of their political prisoners the criminal prosecution of a regional political boss and end to state efforts to impose the administration of the mayor who was expelled last year and the cancellation of arrest warrants from the time of the 2005 uprising. Oaxaca, Mexico, Vladimir Flores, Free Speech Radio News. One of the Midwest's largest steel producers has locked out all 2,700 hourly employees after a union contract expired earlier this week. AK Steelworks in Middletown, Ohio, primarily supplies steel for the automotive and manufacturing industries. Picketers are holding a 24-hour vigil outside the mill as their union leaders plan their strategy for contract negotiations. The success of these negotiations not only impacts the workers, it could also cause a slowdown for the automotive industry. Allison Rahm reports. On a busy road outside of the AK Steelworks Mill in Middletown, Ohio, trucks and cars speed past honking support for the picketers. On Tuesday night, the Fortune 500 company locked out its hourly employees, leaving thousands without work. The mill continues to operate with replacement workers at a reduced capacity. Many picketers report training hundreds of suspected replacement workers in the weeks preceding the lockout. Bob Hauser is a third-generation steelworker with 29 years of experience at the mill. Hauser says he thinks the lockout was planned for some time. We understand that there's going to have to be some concessions made. Most of this, it, most of this isn't even about money. It's about these insane work rules that they're trying to put on us. And um, even, even they can't explain or won't explain how it's going to work or how we're going to operate. Uh, they say they need a smaller, more flexible workforce. Well, all right, we've been cut. We went from 3,000 down to 2,500. Uh, how much more do they want to cut? 
AK Steel and other independent analysts say the current union contract is not industry competitive. The company says it must reduce its workforce, streamline jobs, pass health care costs to employees, and change the pension plan to a 401k. The Armco Employees Independent Federation is pushing to sustain retirement and pension benefits and to create a minimum workforce size. Both sides have expressed interest in resuming negotiations. Walter Martin is a production worker with AK Steel. Seniority within a company and, and that a union employee has is probably the most important thing that we can have. Because with seniority, you can get, to, get a better job, a safer job, a cleaner job. Are they going to take you out of one spot that you're used to, you know all the danger? Are they going to stick you in a, in a spot that has 3,000 degree metal? Today, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reported that AK Steel is in talks to be acquired by U.S. Steel, one of the country's largest steel producers. This acquisition would create the sixth largest steel company in the world. In the wake of bankruptcies and consolidations, steel worker unions have struggled to maintain wages and pension plans for workers. AK Steel has seven other facilities in Ohio and neighboring states. It has already reached what it calls new era labor agreements with different unions at these plants. Again, Bob Hauser. Now part of this is the government's fault. They let all these bankrupt steel companies reform and get rid of their legacy cost. And now these reform mills are uh, undercutting our price by 40 to $50 a ton. They don't have to pay retirees. They don't have to pay the retirees' medical costs. And that is a considerable amount of money. And I understand that. It's like I don't want to see anybody lose their job. But these companies failed for a reason. In 1988, AK Steel locked out the same union in Middletown for four days. AK Steel also locked out a United Steel Workers of America unit out of its Mansfield, Ohio plant for more than three years. The lockout ended in 2002. For Free Speech Radio News in Columbus, Ohio, I'm Allison Rahm. Guatemalans have new hope for clearing up state-sponsored human rights violations that included prolonged torture, rape, and murder, which occurred during the 36-year-long civil war that ended in 1996. Human rights authorities have discovered a massive police archive that dates back to 1902. They say it's the largest of its kind in Latin America and add that it contains valuable clues about the fate of thousands of victims who were killed or disappeared during the war. Jill Replogle reports from Guatemala. The mood was festive outside the rundown police warehouse in Guatemala City as human rights ombudsman Sergio Morales presented the first results of months of picking through moldy, animal-infested police files housed in the warehouse. This archive was condemned to a slow death, and with it, we would have lost an infinity of footprints, clues, and keys to understanding the national tragedy that we still have not recovered from. Last summer, Guatemalan human rights authorities were investigating a munitions depot when they stumbled upon a massive trove of police documents. Upon closer inspection, they discovered what appeared to be the complete archives of the national police. It was an incredible find. Past Guatemalan governments had always denied that such an archive existed. Gustavo Meoño is the lead investigator in charge of the archive. Tanto el Remi como el informe de la Comisión fueron elaborados fundamentalmente. Meoño says information about Guatemala's brutal civil war has thus far been based mainly on victims' testimonies. 
the archive will provide the first major set of official documents from the war's darkest years, from the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s. An estimated 200,000 people were killed in the war and 50,000 more disappeared. A United Nations Truth Commission held the Guatemalan military and police forces responsible for most of the violence. Guatemalan human rights lawyer Fernando Lopez says the archive could help bring war criminals to justice. The police archives open the possibility for investigations to be reopened, especially in cases where people were disappeared or killed by security forces in the Guatemalan capital. But first, archive workers face the daunting task of restoring, digitizing, and analyzing over 50 million documents. The project will take years and require major funding. Those in charge of the project hope the archive will fill in key gaps in Guatemalan history and offer information to victims' family members about the fate 